Morning, everyone. So, um, let me just begin here um, and kind of focus our attention by having you think of two contrasting pictures. So, two different passages from the Gospel of Matthew, two very different people, two very different responses. So the first one is actually found in Matthew 13, 44. So Jesus tells a parable, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So that's the one picture. It's a certain man finds this treasure, and you see his response he sells us everything that he has to buy that field, and he does so in his joy. So a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, there's a young man that comes up to Jesus and asks, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep the commandments. So he replies, Which ones? And Jesus says, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. So he gives him some of the Ten Commandments, the latter half, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? So Jesus then gets to the heart of the matter. He kind of shines the spotlight on this young man's heart, and he says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So this man's response is very different from the response of the man in chapter 13. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what was the difference between sell all to buy the field in your joy and shrugging your shoulders and walking away disappointed because you have great possessions. So what do you think? What was the difference between those two scenarios, those two men, those two responses? Because the call in both cases was to obtain great treasure. That was the promise in both situations. If the first man sells everything that he has and buys this field, he's got a treasure that's worth way more than his, you know, what he has to sell to get it. And then Jesus had promised that young man, that rich young man, that if he sold everything and gave to the poor, he would have treasure in heaven. Like the kind that moth and rust can't destroy, thieves can't break in and steal. So, Keep that picture in mind. We'll come back to it later. Um, but if you're joining us here for the first time this morning, we're in the midst of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is chapters, it refers to chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel according to Matthew. And we've been walking through it here for the past uh, few months, section by section. And so this morning, we come to Matthew chapter 6, verses 20, I'm sorry, verses 19 to 24. So if you're 
listening in, um, I encourage you to, to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, I think the words will be on the screen, or you can also just download the ESV Bible app for free, and you'll be using the same translation that we use week to week here at Bethel. All right, so Matthew chapter 6, let's read uh, these verses, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in. So Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come to you with confidence and we can call you our Father as your beloved sons and daughters because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross in our place for us to deal with our sin and to reconcile us to you, give us peace with you so that we could be adopted into your family, to know your love and your care, the security of knowing that you are for us and not against us, you know our needs even before we ask. Everything is from you. And you're going to take care of us now and forever. So Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of who we are in Christ this morning and all of the grace that you have richly poured out on us through Christ. Make that so real to us this morning. The riches of your mercy. How lavish you have poured out your grace on us. That these verses, these commands of Jesus, that they would not sound like bad news, that we would shrug our shoulders and walk away, but they would sound like amazing good news. So Lord, give us eyes to see your goodness, your grace, your glory this morning. Gives us, give us ears to hear what you have to say by your spirit work in each of our hearts and do your heart work that you intend to do to change us from the inside out as we've seen over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. You intend to change us from the inside out, not just a a religious veneer on the outside, not just mere behavioral change, 
but you want to completely renovate us and renew us and make us like Jesus from the inside out. So do it this morning, Lord, and use this passage to change us how you intend to change us. We want your will to be done in our lives and on earth as it is in heaven. We want your kingdom to come. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so I pray that we would humbly and happily welcome your rule and reign in our lives, that we wouldn't stiff-arm you, that we wouldn't resist it. So that in and through our lives, in and through our church, your name would be hallowed. That people would see how holy and valuable and worthy and precious and glorious you are as they interact with us, your people. Help us to shine with your light. Help us not to drag your name through the mud. Help us not to live in such a way that you're just a small thing to us. I pray that instead you would be everything to us as you ought to be. Lord, we are needy people in so many ways. Please continue to provide for us and help us to help each other to even be the answer to some of these prayers. Lord, give us our daily bread. Help us to realize that we need to care for one another in this way, not just protect our own interests and provide for ourselves selfishly. Lord, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Help us to be sensitive to our sin and repenting of our sin, mourning over our sin, owning it. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Help us to be quick to forgive those who sin against us, knowing the debt that you have forgiven. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we dive into these verses, um, we need to put this in context. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a bunch of entrance requirements for getting into the kingdom. Okay? These are kingdom ethics for the disciples of Jesus. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you see first off in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 3, that you are spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table but debt, but our sin. So sin is debt. It's like debt. Whenever you sin against someone, you owe them. So if I lie to you, I owe you the truth. If I dishonor you, I actually owe you honor. I've created a debt there when I fail to do that. So if I ask forgiveness, you have to be willing to pay the cost of my sin. You have to forgive the debt. So all sin has to be paid for. And even more important and ultimate than our sin against one another, all of our sin is ultimately against God. All our debt is infinite. Like if we just pile up all of our sin, the debt is infinite. We owe God a debt that we cannot pay. It's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Pastor Tyler walked us through last week. Forgive us our debts. That's, 
that can only be answered because of what Jesus did on the cross. Otherwise, it wouldn't be just for God to just forgive it and sweep it under the rug. Jesus paid our debt on the cross. It's why he hung there and said, it is finished before he gave up his spirit. He had paid the debt in full. He was making full atonement for our sins. We can't atone for our sins. So God is so rich in mercy, like it says in Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So our debt is great, but God's rich mercy is greater. And Jesus pays that debt if we trust in him as our Savior. We see our need. We see his mercy. We trust him, follow him. And all of that rich mercy and grace is ours. So 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it so well. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he, was, he had everything in heaven, yet for our sake he became poor. The incarnation, he became this poor peasant, and then he ultimately died on a cross in our place so that by his poverty we might become rich, the riches of his mercy and his grace. So we, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are rich beyond measure. Even if you've got nothing as far as money and possessions is concerned, you have everything because you are a son or daughter of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who owns everything. And our inheritance is, <laughs> it's everything. The meek shall inherit the earth. So when we see that, we see the richness of God's mercy and grace in Christ, we know that we are truly blessed, which is why the Sermon on the Mount starts out with, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their poverty and the rich grace of God in Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we can't read the Sermon on the Mount as if it's entrance requirements. Well, if I do this, and for instance, our passage, if I give enough, then can I get into heaven? No. This is the result, the fruit of trusting Jesus and following him. These are the ethics of the kingdom. Also, just a little bit of context before we dive in to these verses in particular. In chapter 6, there is um, a lot of language that ties the whole thing together. It may seem like he's hitting different subjects when he talks about prayer and fasting and now giving and then anxiety and all of that. But there is reward and treasure and what is first in your life? What are your priorities? That runs the whole way through. So he talks about reward in verses 1 to 6 and then 16 to 18. Now he's going to talk about laying up treasure in heaven. You can see how those are parallel. This is true reward and treasure. And then it's also connected to where he goes next, verses 25 to 34, which you're going to look at next week, which is summarized well near the end. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness rather than seeking our own personal earthly kingdom. Okay, so reward, treasure, what is your priority? What are you seeking first? That is primary here the whole way through chapter 6. All right, so there's basically three main moves in our, our section here. Um, verses 19 to 21, verses 22 to 23, and then verse 24. So 
Jesus begins with a couple of commands. It's kind of like the application, like here's what we're supposed to not do and do. And then he's going to give an illustration in verses 22 and 23. And then he's going to talk about issue, the issue of allegiance. Who has your allegiance in verse 24? So we'll take those each in turn. So first point, two treasures, verses 19 to 21. Jesus said, do not lay up, treasure, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So don't hoard wealth. Don't accumulate stuff on earth for yourself. It doesn't mean it's wrong to save. Okay, in the Old Testament, Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Okay, so Paul is commending, he's saying it's normal for a parent to save for their children, to give them an inheritance. So he's not saying don't save, don't sock some money away and give your kids an inheritance. He's saying don't stockpile for the sake of your own security. Don't put your hope for the future in earthly wealth. You could say it this way. Don't try to put yourself, don't try to get yourself in a position where you don't need to trust God for your future. Jesus then gives some reasons for this. But he doesn't say that treasures are bad in themselves. There are a lot of good earthly treasures, okay? But notice the way Jesus reasons. He doesn't say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because they're evil or because I don't want you to have any fun or because if you're really spiritual, you'll be poor as a pauper. Instead, watch how Jesus reasons. Look at this. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because it's not a secure investment, because they are corruptible and vulnerable, because they won't last. So this is a wisdom issue. Like if you're wise, you won't invest in something that's so fragile and vulnerable. So that's what not to do, okay? So what does this king have to say positively about what to do with your wealth? Look at verse 20. So don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I mean, have you ever let that sink in for yourselves? Jesus comes on the scene and says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He doesn't say, okay, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, give 10% of your money to the temple because it's right. He doesn't say, God has done so much for you. It's about time you start paying him back. I wonder if you've ever noticed that the consistent way that Jesus motivates his followers and other Bible authors for that matter is not motivation out of paying God back. 
It's not motivation out of guilt. It's not motivation out of heavy obligation or burdensome duty. He motivates us, his followers, by promise of gain. Like Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. We can't take it with us when we die. To gain what we cannot lose. Treasure in heaven where moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. So in other words, in commanding us to give, he's really calling us, inviting us to receive. (laughs) He wants us to make a wise investment. An investment with eternity's long-term timeline in view. So Jesus wants you and me to spend our lives on what's going to last. So there's a parallel passage in Luke 12. Listen again, just so you see. Jesus reasons this way over and over again with us. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Francis Schaeffer is a 20th century apologist and author. He and his wife, Edith, started this place called Labrie in the Swiss Alps, and people would come and, you know, with their questions of faith, and um, it's like this little commune, and all kinds of people came to faith in Jesus uh, because Francis Schaeffer and Edith, they lived it out, and they had, you know, just good, solid biblical answers, thoughtful answers to people's real-life questions, um, the ultimate questions. So he wrote this little article um, a while ago. He's dead now, but anyway, he wrote this article called Ash Heap Lives. And he gave this illustration. He said, imagine a man who has to carry $5,000 over the Alps and who has a choice of two bags. One is made of cheesecloth, and he knows that if he uses it, the money will soon begin dribbling out. So he chooses the other, a heavy leather bag. When he arrives at his destination, the money is safe. Jesus is just as explicit. When we lay up our treasures in this life, we have chosen a worthless bag. We are going someplace, you know. And when we arrive, we do not want to find we have left everything upon the way. So we Americans, we're kind of like pretty used to being comparison shoppers, aren't we? We're pretty good at cost-benefit analysis. At least we think we are. So we ought to be the first ones to get Jesus' logic here. So maybe we understand it here, but why are we slow to respond and obey? This is gain, true and lasting gain that Jesus is after for us. God doesn't need anything. You know, he's not like, man, the, you know, bank account's running a little low. I need, to, I need to put a little guilt trip on my people so I can fill up. No, he owns everything. 
He wants us to trust him. I mean, what kind of king is this? The kind of king who wants what's best for us. The kind of king who knows true treasure when he sees it. So it's not just right to obey Jesus, though it is. It's wise. We'd be a fool not to obey Jesus, not to trust him and follow him. I mean, Jesus is just echoing the kind of things that the Old Testament said about God. Like when people run after other gods, it's craziness. So Jeremiah 2 has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods. My people have traded me in, changed their glory for that which does not profit. These idols, these false gods can't benefit them. Like if you're going to worship money, money's not a real God. It can't save you. Not going to do you any good on your deathbed. Or Isaiah 48, 17. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Like real benefit, we've got to trust God for that. He knows what's good for us. This whole world went wrong and got broken when Adam and Eve bought the lies of the evil one and thought they could determine what was best for them instead of trusting God. So, listen, I'm not, you know, toying with some kind of crazy prosperity theology. I mean, Jesus was a homeless peasant. (laughs) The point is, he is talking about eternal treasure. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, promises of, you know, that the televangelists would make. But instead, this is like, you can imagine a parent with a, with a child who he wants to go burn his piggy bank on that mechanical arm at the arcade. And the parent's like, no, 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 no. This, this is a waste of money. You could save up and there's so many other things that are a better investment. So this is what Jesus is doing with us. And if this is true, then according to the simple principles of investment logic, we would be fools to waste our money on too much earthly treasure because it's such a bad investment. So I don't know if any of you are thinking like, good grief, we're in the midst of this pandemic and, you know, crazy economic um, meltdown potentially facing maybe a a great depression, like lay up treasure in heaven. Are you crazy? Like this isn't the time to give. We've got to hunker down and prepare for meltdown here. It could sound kind of tone deaf to the news. Well, first off, this is the next section in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's why we're here. But also it's very fitting, actually, if you think about it. Look to the very next verse after our section. So Jesus says, lay up treasure in heaven. You know, who's your master? Is it going to be God or money? And then he says, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. If you lay up treasure on, in heaven rather than on earth, you might start to get anxious as to whether or not there's going to be enough But then Jesus says, don't be anxious. Your father knows what you need. Trust him. So this is very fitting in a time like this. 
Because guess what? There is going to be lots of need around us and maybe all of us are going to, it's going to be harder to give, but there's going to be a greater need to give. So how are we going to be able to be generous and loving in the midst of fearful, anxious times? Interesting fact. Did you know that charitable giving percentages were higher during the Great Depression than in the bullish market of the 90s? So this is like a word that we need regardless of what time we live in of, you know, scarcity or abundance. So um, again, statistics here. Among church members of 11 primary Protestant denominations in the U.S. and Canada, Canada per member giving as a percentage of in- income was lower in the year 2000 than in either 1921 or 1933 right before or at the, you know, depth of the Great Depression. So here's the thing. Times like this, it actually helps us see what's really important, what really matters. We're all mortal. We're all going to die. Some of you may die as a result of this pandemic. Some of us might die. So we should be wise and not waste our lives and certainly also not waste our money and our possessions. It's times like this that prove and illustrate the wisdom of Jesus' words. I mean, how much have you lost so far in the stock market? Some of you could probably tell, tell me right away because you've been looking. How's your retirement been affected? The point is, it's all so vulnerable. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. But thankfully, Jesus is not only saying that earthly treasure is vulnerable. He's saying that heavenly treasure is not vulnerable. Jesus is giving us wise kingdom investment strategy here. Aggressive, long-term, risk-free, high-yield investing. All those things don't usually go together. (laughs) Aggressive, long-term, risk-free, high yield. But that is what happens when you're investing in the kingdom. So it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or if you make minimum wage. This is a word for all of us. I mean, what if we were all single-minded and devoted to things that had value in eternity. Like some people are one track and devoted in their materialism, laying up treasure on earth. Okay, so before we go any further, one question that's probably begging to be answered is, what is this treasure that we're laying up in heaven? I I don't think we should be thinking in terms of jewels in our crown or heavenly bank accounts, okay? So there's a a weird passage in Luke 16, It's a parable that Jesus tells, and it can be a little confusing, but the point is actually really simple, and it's profound. Jesus talks about this manager who is going to lose his job because of mismanagement, and he scrambles. He's like, oh, I don't want to have to be a, you know, a day laborer. And he says, I know what I'll do. And before he gets booted, he brings all his master's clients in and says, how much do you owe my master? Well, I owe him this much. Well, cut it in half. Write this out. I'll sign it. And so basically what he does is he prepares for himself when he gets booted from his job. He makes friends 
with his master's clients and they will receive him into their house and take care of him after he loses his job. So what in the world does that have to do with treasure in heaven? Jesus then says, use this money to make a rich welcome when you enter eternal habitations. In other words, use money to help other people get to heaven. So the treasure that you're storing up is actually people-related. So when you give money to needy folks in the name of Jesus, when you give money so that the gospel gets spread around the world or in this city, more people come to realize the riches of God's mercy in Christ— then guess what? You are getting in on what God is doing in this world and some of those people are going to be in heaven. Their lives are going to be eternally changed because of your investment. That's seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So we are laying up treasure in heaven and we're going to enter heaven someday and all of these people are going to come and say, you know what? I want to thank you. You used your time and talents and treasure in a faithful way, and in part, that's why I'm here. So what if we really got this? Like, we might actually get excited about getting involved in as much ministry as possible. We might actually be motivated to figure out, okay, what do I need to live on so that I can give away as much as possible? So instead of like hoping that God doesn't want us to tithe on the the gross, but, you know, is it okay to tithe on the net? You know, just playing these kind of mental games we might be moved to maximize our giving rather than seeking to justify minimizing it. So we're so spring-loaded to be so earthly-minded. Sometimes we even use our kingdom giving to get what we want on earth. Like we can almost treat giving like tax-paying. Give God some money. Hope he blesses us in the ways that we want. Have you ever given hoping or maybe even assuming that in return it's going to go well for you in your business or your life? Like, well, if I honor God, he's going to honor me. And what you mean by that is he'll prosper my business. Now, oftentimes God does do that. But if we're using the giving in order to get what we really want, then we're using God like a tool rather than him being the treasure. So kingdom giving is not a means to earthly blessing. It's the other way around. So Jesus gives no promise of earthly prosperity here. He does give promise of heavenly treasure. So we've got to get our minds and our hearts off of earthly things and start orienting our lives by this perspective. What counts in eternity? So Jesus goes on then in verse 21 to tell us why we ought to lay up treasure in heaven, not waste our lives, not waste our money, be good stewards and invest in the long term in eternity. So verse 21, why should we lay up treasure in heaven? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So pretty simple point, like wherever your heart is, that's a really important issue. Who has your heart? Where is your heart? Like, 
as we get closer to death, are we backing away from our treasure or are we getting closer to our treasure? If to live is Christ and to die is gain, you see, we're living for Christ now. We're laying up treasure in heaven. And when we die, we get Jesus face to face. And we've laid up treasure in heaven and we're moving toward our reward rather than backing away from it. So we've got to be sure to notice the logic here. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Notice that. I mean, we all know that the reverse is true, right? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. You know, if you, if you love electronics or tools or whatever, you're going to spend some money on that stuff. If you love clothes or interior design, you're going to spend money on those things. But that's not Jesus' point here. His point is actually that your heart follows your treasure, which is actually kind of encouraging because sometimes it sure doesn't feel like our heart is in heaven. It can seem kind of ethereal and, you know, hard to grasp. Well, put your money where your mouth is, invest, and you'll watch your heart, the, the kind of center of gravity move from earth to heaven because where your treasure is there your heart will be also so where is your heart and this is a call to set our heart on things above so jesus the king of kings he comes on the scene and he says i don't want your heart on earth i want your heart in heaven i want your heart Remember, if you've been with us in previous weeks, you know that the first words out of Jesus' mouth that Matthew records when he begins his earthly ministry, chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the king. He's on the scene. He's bringing his kingdom. So we in our stinginess, we in our earthly mindedness, we in our selfishness or maybe we're trying to impress others with our giving or whatever it is, our materialism, whatever it is, repent and come in line with King Jesus and follow him. These are kingdom ethics. Again, Francis Schaeffer from that same essay, he said this, have you ever walked through a city dump? You should. When I was growing up in Philly, I would hike every Saturday. To get to the clean air of the country, I used to save a couple miles by tramping through the city dump. I've never forgotten this. It was a place of junk, fire, and stench. It has helped me tremendously to think back on that place because even as a boy, I realized that I saw, that I saw there almost everything people spend their money for. That was where their investment ended. Here is a topic for Christian artists or poets. Meditation on the ash heap or owed on a city dump. <laughs> so maybe somebody needs to write that song. About a hundred years ago, someone did write a song, Be Thou My Vision, um, in response to thoughts like this. One of the stanzas in that song is, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, O God, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. So Jesus is doing a faith check, a heart check here. Money is like a mirror to see who we really are, what we really value. It's a window into our heart, to our priorities, our values. It's, it's even an excavator 
of hidden motives and values and desires and fears. Your money follows your heart and your heart follows your money. So what do you treasure? We're all treasure hunters. We're all seeking reward and value and treasure. So ask yourself, what makes me happy? What do I value most? What makes me angry if, if it's taken away or if it's threatened to be removed? What, what do I fear? What would I hate most to lose? So then Jesus, to drive these truths home, moves next to an illustration of what he's been saying. And at first glance, this can sound like, where, where does this come from? But it actually um, is a beautiful illustration, a powerful illustration of what Jesus is saying. So look at verses, second point here, two eyes. These last two points are briefer. Um, two eyes, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what in the world is this eye is the lamp of the body thing? Well, a healthy, clear eye is a single-minded kind of clearly focused eye. It's not divided between two masters. So the eye, this idea in Jesus's time, the eye represents your priorities, your value system. Okay, so if you value earthly treasure, your whole life will be filled with seeking that treasure. If your value system is such that you're oriented to heavenly treasure, then your whole life is going to be filled with seeking that treasure. You're going to be seeking first his kingdom. See it? So if your eye is healthy, if it's good, then your whole body is going to be filled with kingdom light and love. You're going to be generous. But if your eye is bad, focused on earthly treasure, selfish, materialistic, then your whole body is going to be filled with darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, like if you think you see clearly, but actually you're blind to what's really valuable, oh no, your whole life is going to be full of that darkness. So do you see how this connects to how we opened up with those two illustrations, the two pictures, the two responses, those two men? So the difference is the guy who found the treasure hidden in the field and sold everything in his joy, he had a good eye, a healthy, clear eye. He saw the value. And so he willingly, gladly gave up everything in order to have that infinitely valuable treasure. Unfortunately, the, the rich young ruler had a bad eye. He was blind to true value. So Jesus said, you'll have treasure in heaven. And he went, that's, that's not a good deal. And he walked away. And his whole life was full of darkness. So where are your eyes set? Do you see the value of what Jesus is saying? Do you see the value of laying up treasure in heaven? Do you see kind of the chasing after the wind that seeking earthly treasure is? It's like a mirage. <clears throat> so we need to fix our eyes on God 
and seek first the kingdom. We also need to get our eyes off other people. I think sometimes when it comes to money and possessions and even giving, we can compare ourselves to others to try to quiet our conscience or justify ourselves. But listen, this is a heart issue. You could be poor and very materialistic and earthly-minded. You can be rich and very heavenly-minded and vice versa. You can actually give a lot of money away and still be very earthly-minded. You can give away relatively little and be very heavenly-minded, like the, the widow who had just two mites and she gave it away, and Jesus said she's given more than anyone else. So we've got enough to worry about in our own hearts on this one. We don't need to be judgmental and self-righteous and, and envious and you know, suspicious of other people and their giving and spending patterns and whatever else. Let's get our eyes on God, on Jesus, follow him, trust his promises, and then let's get our eyes on others and see the kind of needs that we can meet by this kingdom-oriented generosity. All right, last point. Two masters, verse 24. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. We've had two treasures, two eyes, and now two masters. It's one or the other. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we all serve someone or something. Just like Bob Dylan told us, you got to serve somebody. Um, actually played that song for... <laughs> okay, this is application. You should go play... Gotta Serve Somebody by Bob Dylan on the Slow Train Coming album. Okay, it's good application. Just trust me, you gotta listen to it. Um, we are all gonna serve someone. Doesn't matter who you are, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, privileged, not privileged, everybody's gonna serve somebody. But you gotta think about this issue of serving a master. How do people serve money? Did you ever notice that money doesn't need anything? You're never money's benefactor. Money is not an employer. It's, it's a master or it's a servant. And the same thing with God. Nobody ever, like, th there's two different kinds of service in the world. There's a service that aims at giving and a service that aims at receiving. So sometimes someone in your life is needy and you serve them in order to meet their need. But there's also a serving that is receiving. And that's how we relate to money. Money doesn't need anything, but it promises something. And if you believe that promise, you will serve money in order to obtain that promise. So we never meet any needs in God. That would be blasphemous to treat him that way. But God does promise things. And if we believe him, we will serve him. Not as taxpayers, but as treasure seekers. So, you can imagine, you can picture someone who is a devoted slave of master money. Whether they're a gambler, a lottery player, a thief, a workaholic, a stock market junkie. How do, the, how do those people serve money? With this 
wholehearted devotion, this single-minded focus. We could learn a lot from someone like that. And what if we, as God's people, served him like that because his promises are so much greater than what money can offer to us? Like, oh, what glory we would bring to our king and what good we would do to this needy world around us if we were single-minded, wholehearted in our devotion to our master like some people are devoted to their master money. So this is good news here in Matthew 6, but it's a serious kind of good news. Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't serve God in money. He says you cannot. Your heart can't be in two places at the same time. You can't bow in two different directions at once, giving your worship. No divided heart. No, Jesus is after integrity, wholeness. He wants our whole heart. So here's the question. Can you see who you serve? With a clear eye, is your eye on Jesus and on his amazing promises of true and lasting reward and treasure and gain? If they are, then we will seek first the kingdom. We will lay up treasure in heaven. We will be generous and willing to share. We will invest significantly, generously, sacrificially in kingdom purposes. And we'll do it gladly, cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. He gives the grace to cheerfully give. So I'm going to close with this illustration by Ray Ortland. Again, think back to that, those two contrasting pictures the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and that man's response and the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, and his response. Um, it's an extended quote, but I think it's worth reading and then uh, we'll close in prayer and sing a final song. Ortland writes this. He says, Picture yourself standing with Jesus on the sidewalk of a commercial park somewhere here in town. He points to a building on one side of the street. Don't invest in that company, Earth, Inc., their security system is inadequate. People are hacking into their computers. Their physical plant is aging. In fact, their site is condemned. But look over here on this side of the street. Heaven, Inc. Their assets are secure, backed up by the Lord of the universe. Their security is infallible and their performance impeccable. They have never lost one single dime. Every dollar invested with them has repaid big time. Why do we even hesitate? When we realize what Jesus is saying, the conclusion is obvious. So why don't we live this way more aggressively? It can't be because heaven is out in our future because earthly investments also require us to wait. So delay isn't the problem. The problem is unbelief. Something inside feels that earthly wealth is more real than heavenly wealth. Heavenly wealth seems ethereal, thin, unsatisfying. We don't invest more aggressively in heaven because heaven seems unreal, which is another way of saying that God seems unreal. When it comes to investments, what really compels us is the earthly. The Bible says of Abraham that he was seeking a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham lived in a tent. He was a nomad, but God invited him to go on pilgrimage for a well-established city, and Abraham followed. To him, 
what a well-established city was to a tent, heaven was to earth. More solid, better established. That man was a believer. Did you know that 50 years ago, $166 bought one share of Coca-Cola stock? And left untouched, today it would be 2,500 shares worth, and I don't know when he wrote this, but this would be true maybe 10 years ago. Um, 2,500 shares worth $167,000. You could have multiplied your initial investment 1,000 times. Now, as soon as I say that, we're saying to ourselves, boy, I wish I had the foresight to do that. What else is out there right now that might be the next Coca-Cola? How are my investments doing? What do I need to move around in the market, right? All I have to do is drop that little factoid about Coke into the mental pool and ripples form immediately. If we don't respond to the opportunity for heavenly investment with at least the same enthusiasm, it shows what we really believe in. If we believe that heaven was a better investment than earth, Jesus wouldn't have preached about it. We wouldn't need persuasion. We'd only need opportunity, and people would be fighting for first place in line. But why does Jesus even bother to tell us this? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus wasn't mounting a fundraising drive. His own personal needs were minimal. He wasn't launching building plans. Jesus had no institutional motivation for saying this. What does he care about our investments? He doesn't need our money. Does he even care about these little human contrivances called dollars, pounds, francs, and yen? What's motivating Jesus? Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants our hearts. And do you see what he's implying? He has just advised us to invest well. Now he's implying, I know you care about your hoard. You care a lot. So secure it. Don't let the moth, rust, and thieves rifle through your pockets. Protect your investments by sending them on ahead to heaven. But what I want is your heart. And I want you to invest enough in heaven so that your heart's loyalty transfers up there. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would please help us to know deep down, experientially, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, Yet for our sake, he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. And I pray that our giving, our laying up treasure would be a reflex, a grateful, happy, cheerful, faith-filled response to your generous giving. And I pray also that we would trust you <clears throat> that you will take care of us. That we would believe promises like 2 Corinthians 9, 8. You are able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, we may abound in every good work. Help us to see your rich grace at the cross and your rich promises to provide for us in the future. And in that security and in that fullness, may we seek first your kingdom and live generous, loving, sacrificial lives for the glory of your name and the good of so many others. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.